The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I couldn't see being an English major and having to read 400 pages a week. I was a very slow reader. So I, from childhood on, I much preferred the picture books. And art history was the ultimate major for a student who prefers pictures over long text. But I loved history. And I thought, well, art history is sort of the time-life books approach to studying history. You study it through the images, the monuments, the buildings, the paintings, sculptures, etc. If you want to write a short, really short, distilled book. Bring only your iPhone to write on, one digit at a time. I don't can't do the two thumbs, so it was really one index finger book. And it was called Sacred Muse, a preface to Christian art and music. And very, very short, blissfully so, and, and, and lots of illustrations. But then this year, I brought my laptop, and I thought, well, I'll write another book. And Michelle said, you really should write the stories your father told you and all the, the backstories to the history of Scribner's and your family, because if you don't do it, th these stories will be lost forever. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Publishing legend, art historian, and author, Charles Scribner III spoke with me about growing up surrounded by publishing, Hemingway's Three Rules to Life, and his memoir slash family history, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. Charles is an art historian, author, editor, and lecturer who received his bachelor's, master of fine arts, and PhD from Princeton University in art and archaeology. He worked in publishing for nearly 30 years and is a prominent authority on Caravaggio, Bernini, Rubens, and other artists, He's also written biographies on Rubens and Benini, articles for Vanity Fair, Art and Antiques, among others, and has lectured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the National Gallery, Smithsonian, Christie's, and various universities. His forthcoming family history, Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing, is about the inside story of five generations over 150 years at the legendary publishing house of Charles Scribner's sons. The author, the fifth of the Charleses to work at that house of celebrated authors provides an inside view between the covers of illustrious and notorious books of the family members, editors, and authors of this colorful literary history. Kirkus Reviews called it a charming memoir of a life in books. Publishers Weekly called it a lively and refreshing must-read for those interested in the history of book publishing. 
Charles remained at Scribner's through three changes in ownership, overseeing the publication of its literary classics. He's also a commentator for TV documentaries on both Edith Wharton for BBC and PBS, Fitzgerald, and Hemingway for any biography. In this file, Charles and I discussed how manuscripts and galleys symbolize the world he grew up in, why he chose now to share the stories of the literary lions his father worked with, some of the greatest editors of the 20th century, how to write a book in two months, why loyalty is the most important thing in publishing, the secret behind Hemingway's will, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are rolling once again on The Writer Files, and I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. We have Charles Scribner III, uh, a publishing legend, as it were, also an esteemed art historian, and author, editor, and lecturer. How are you today, Charles? Oh, I'm great. I'm glad this is my this is my first Zoom. So I, I hope your listeners will be will be charitable. <laughs> well, you're and doing... by the way, by yeah. the way, I should say I don't I don't mind being hailed as an art historian, but I was a, a publisher by an accident of birth. I think I, I call myself a professional son. I think I am the son of the esteemed publisher. <laughs> I'm more Boswell than Johnson. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait to talk about all things uh, publishing. And of course, your latest book that is uh, going to be coming out here very shortly. And yeah, congratulations. But I want to take you back and talk about just kind of your winding path. You grew up in a household of books, obviously surrounded by publishing, as you put it. And I can't wait to talk about these five generations of Charles's in this house. But yeah, take us back and talk about your path to writing. And of course, publishing, you're no, you're no stranger to um, writing and publishing. You've had this academic career. And of course, you've, you've lectured across the country. And yeah, you have you kind of have your own accolades, as it were. And then, as you said, you're a son of this esteemed publishing house. But take us back and just tell us a little bit about your kind of own superhero origins, if you will. Well, I was I was actually born in Washington D.C. because my father was, he, although expected to go into the family business, which he did, he would have preferred to be an academic. I think either a classics professor or maybe even a physics professor at Princeton. But he thought it would break his father's heart. So he went into publishing right after World War II. But uh, during World War II, had been a code breaker in Washington in the Navy, breaking the Japanese naval code. And uh, by the time I was expected, let's say, um, the Korean War was raging and he was called back to Washington. So I was born in Washington. But the first, uh, the first home I remember was our apartment in New York City. And what I remember most vividly is that it had a large front hall and it was the whole wall was covered in bookshelves and filled with my father's books. And my grandfather, who was a lawyer, my mother's father, was most disapproving. He thought, you know, hallways do not uh, are not libraries. They don't have books. But I think that probably symbolizes more than anything else 
um, the world that I grew up in with a father who was at a very young age, at age 30, when his uh, father died of a heart attack, he had to take, he was released from the Navy in Washington and was able to come back to New York, but he took over the firm at age 30, which must have been daunting. But that was, uh, he would bring manuscripts home. He had a desk in the dining room, uh, which sort of doubled as his study. And I remember it had these shelves that pulled out. And I guess it had been designed for a publisher because they were to hold the galleys or manuscripts. So, I mean, I just was surrounded by that uh, from the earliest age. Yeah, you were kind of immersed in that world. And then, of course, went on to, as you had mentioned, went on to Princeton as well, but in studied art and art and archaeology. And uh, but then, of course, you know, eventually came back to the fold. I did. And it, I really came back. I thought it was between degrees. It was between, between my master's and Ph.D. in art history at Princeton. And I had just gotten the master's degree and the summer stretched out ahead. And I all I had left to do was write a dissertation, uh, which is sort of a daunting prospect. So I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll go work for a while. And my father had lost an editor. And he was mentioning with his mother, my grandmother at lunch, that he was short of person. And I piped up and I said, well, I'll, I'll come in and help. And uh, that took him totally by surprise because I hadn't had shown any interest in that. I sort of retreated. Or, or, or maybe not retreated is the word, escaped into art history because I couldn't see being an English major and having to read 400 pages a week. I was a very slow reader. So I, from childhood on, I much preferred the picture books. And art history was the ultimate major for a student who prefers pictures over long text. So that's really how I escaped into art history. I thought, I want to learn history. I was not an artsy type. I didn't paint. I didn't sculpt. But I loved history. And I thought, well, art history is sort of the time life books approach to studying history. You study it through the images, the monuments, the buildings, the paintings, sculptures, etc. Well, you've written some lauded biographies, of course, and been published widely, uh, lectured at the Met and the National Gallery and Smithsonian and on and on and on. And, and so considering your latest publication, of course, and you continue to publish on a wide variety of subjects in the art world. Um, let's talk about this fantastic kind of uh, exploration of the publishing world. And really from, from this perspective and your perspective is, as you put it, you know, you've written this kind of it, it, as a retelling almost of this architecture of your childhood memories, but it, it really is really well-researched. And of course, I am talking about five generations in publishing uh, Scribner's being obviously the the uh, the name that we're talking about, but yeah, tell us about the inspiration because I understand you, you know there's a part of part of it that you really wanted to uh, kind of enlighten your your grandkids about these fascinating stories that your your dad told uh, kind of around the <laughs> dinner table, right? Well, absolutely, it really began as it re really just began as kind of a narrative uh, put down on paper for the grandchildren. I really owe it to two people. The first was my longtime editor, who had been a colleague at Scribner's and Macmillan way back when uh, she was the religion editor, Michelle Rapkin. And um, she's now a freelance editor, and she, she worked on my last four books, including this one. And I told her, uh, actually, that I had this idea 
I was going to Florida for exile. My wife loves the warm weather in the winter, and I have nothing to do down there. I don't play golf. I don't play bridge. What am I going to do? So uh, the, the previous year, I had only my iPhone. And if you want to write a short, really short, distilled book, bring only your iPhone to write on one digit at a time. I don't can't do the two thumbs. So it was really one index figure book. And it was called Sacred Muse, a preface to Christian art and music. And very, very short, blissfully so, and then and lots of illustrations. But then this year, I brought my laptop and I thought, well, I'll write another book. And Michelle said, you really should write the, the stories your father told you and all the, the backstories to the history of Scribner's and your family, because if you don't do it, these stories will be lost forever. And I thought, okay, I'll take her advice. So it's my wife who who took me to exile in Florida and my editor, Michelle, who gave me the idea for the book. And I had two months and it was, but I got so into it. It it was, I call it my manic month of writing. I wrote seven pages a day for 30 days. So that's how you get a, a 210 page book. And, uh, and thank God I had, and then the second month I had to, to edit it and, and, and make changes, et cetera. Uh, but thank God in a way I didn't give myself a year, uh, because I'm looking at it now, I much prefer at having recorded it for audible, which was a, a real joy out in Newark and their studios. Um, I, I can't imagine if I'd had a year, even if I, cut the pace in half, I would have ended up with a four or 500 page book, which would probably not be unusual for a history that spans, you know, a century and a half. Right. But I I think keeping it really short helped because it becomes a succession of stories. And you were much too kind to tell me how well researched it was. The research was my, was my living it. Um, and in, and I will, I'll confess something in the writing of it. I was, it was such a manic uh, pace of writing. I had a timeline that had been published in Princeton in the archives. I had some architecture to, to work from. I had the, the timeline year by year, and I had an earlier speech that I'd given that was later privately published as a book, a booklet, very short, you know, it was a 45 minute speech on the history of Scribner. So I had the sort of basic cliff notes outline. And as I wrote, questions, of course, ar- arose, like when did Trotsky write his memoirs? Where was he when he, ro- when he wrote them, et cetera? And I had Google. I could not have written this book without Google because I researched it as I wrote it, as the questions arose. And, uh, and that was a kind of an exciting process. Could not have been done 20 years earlier. It would have taken me a, a, probably a year of research in libraries. So I, I, was, I was blessed by the, the internet age. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. 
The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. This is quite a journey. And of course, covering 150 years of this family business from really from Robert Louis Stevenson, as, as you said, to Hemingway um, and all these incredible stories in between. Yeah. And, and not to leave out the famous children's classics, you know, and, and really kind of bouncing from some controversy, obviously, to these safe havens and, and the business itself being kind of at times looking tenuous and, and as, as it does <laughs> uh, from year to year. But yeah, talk about, I mean, it must have been, as you said, this manic month must have been pretty exciting for you to kind of, again, you're kind of reliving it, but at the same time, digging into this, this uh, rich, rich family history. Well, it, it, there's so much more to the history, obviously, than I put in in this you know 200 page would you call it sort of a memoir slash history i mean i tell the history it go it starts at the beginning and it goes up to the present but there's a lot of personal memoir along the way sort of tying it in because so many of the stories uh, came down to me orally but then but then again thanks to google and the internet i was able to verify them. In other words, this is not, I, I don't, I think this book has been fact-checked. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the the challenge was, I had a friend uh, who said that he would write down all these sort of quips and, and sayings of my father's that I would come <laughs> up with. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, and he was for years telling me, he said, Charlie, you should, you should uh, write a little booklet and, uh, and, and include all your father's sayings. I'll give you an example. He had no use for the obitu obituary page of the paper. And when people would start out the day saying, oh, did you see who died in the Times today? Uh, Dad would quip. He'd say, people are dying these days who never died before. Then the most famous one was when we lost our best-selling author, James Jones, to a rival business. Most famous book, of course, was From Here to Eternity, the movie even more famous than the book. Uh, but by his fourth novel, my father thought his writing had gotten sloppier and sloppier, and I think he used the word slovenly. 
Um, and my dad did really did not want to publish Go to the Widowmaker. So when Delacorte came along with today would be a multi-million dollar offer for three books, my father uh, was so relieved. And of course, the editors were all wearing black armbands in mourning for their lost best-selling author. My father was secretly relieved that he didn't have to publish it. He'd read it. And, um, and when the Times called him up and asked him uh, to comment on how did he feel about losing his best-selling author to a rival publishing house, Dad replied, he said, my disappointment is under control. <laughs> and and uh, we at home all roared with laughter. Now, the, the public thought, oh, isn't, isn't that a stoic gentleman? Uh, isn't that a good sport, a good loser? Um, to, to say that, but we knew better. So that, those were some of the examples of, oh, and uh, another one, uh, the, it would drive him crazy that the former elevator man who was now just pushing the button, who was his father's generation, a man named Sam would greet my father happily and heartily when he came into the office and he'd say to me, hi, good morning, Charlie. And then he'd say to my dad, good morning, Charles. And my, I could see this little frown quickly passing over his head. And dad said, oh, hi, Sam. Nice to see you. But I, I remember going to a Buick salesman uh, in, in New Jersey, and he kept calling my father Charles as he showed him model after model. And finally, dad had enough. And he, and he said in his most courtly, most polite manner, he said, please feel free to call me Mr. Scribner if it would make you feel more comfortable. So that was the kind, he had a very dry sense of humor. And uh, I relished it. And, and this book gave me a chance to, to put almost all his sayings in, along with sayings that he got from other people, the most famous being Hemingway, who gave him three rules of life when, as a 30-year-old, he took over. The first was, don't wrestle with bears. The <laughs> second was, don't do knife tricks. And the third was, always do sober. What you said you do when you were drunk, that will keep, teach you to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is, I, was, I, I give this story as an example because I, I really didn't want this book, and I, I hope it didn't come off as being a reverential heavy history. I wanted to keep it light. Yeah, no, and and of course you do. And uh, and it's a joy to read. I mean, it's you can kind of dip in and out of it and get different pieces of different parts of history and the history of publishing and and talking. You know, you you do delve into some really fascinating pieces, obviously, about kind of the arrival of uh, uh, you call the editor of Genius, Max Perkins. Um, you know, and and of course stories about F. Scott Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe, and then as you mentioned Hemingway who are all, you know, larger than life characters. These are these are literary lions um, that you kind of had this, <laughs> as you put it, you know, this really fascinating window into these lives. Well, they had, I I'd had a, a sort of preview of this uh, through my father late in life. Well, early by modern standards, he died at 74, but toward the end of his life, he had a neurological condition that sadly prevented him from reading or writing, but his mind was sharp. And so I came up with the idea uh, to keep him busy and keep him engaged of, 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 of lining up a Columbia University oral history project for him. And 
And when it uh, came through and when I read the transcript, I thought, gosh, dad speaks better than most people write. And um, we had in, in, at, in the house the greatest editor, I mean, in, in terms of editing, as opposed to dealing with authors, Max Perkins was the greatest uh, in the latter category of befriending authors, encouraging them, bringing out the best in them. But in terms of a technical editor, I think we had the greatest who ever existed a uh, part time after he retired from Columbia. The great um, intellectual and historian Jacques Barzin and Jacques Barzin polished my father's oral history and it was edited down uh, by the oral historian Joel Gardner. And then Jacques put the final touches on it and it was called In the Company of Writers. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely personal because that was just dad simply answering questions in an oral history the way I'm answering your questions. And then it was sort of strung together as a narrative. So that kind of gave me the the idea of what the tone could be. And because uh, an oral history is, is, you know, spotty in the sense that all you get are the answers to the questions, you're not going to get the whole history because he, the, 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 the interviewer didn't say, oh, um, tell me the, the the entire history of Scribner's. <laughs> that would have been quite a chore to to tell you know from, from uh, you know from memory anyway. Um, yeah. But th- that sort of gave me the that gave me the example of both length and tone. And I thought, well, I'm, I'll just fill in more of the details, and I'll also tell the stories he told me that he was too modest um, and too reticent to put into his own book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's it, it's it's so telling, and of course, um, really comes through in the work as a as a personal account, as you put it, part memoir, and of course, a journey through some really really fascinating fascinating pieces of history and the history of publishing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's it's fascinating to me, also. Um, yeah, as you put it, how, how astute and and humble your dad was. And I thought one of his quotes, which kind of sounds like it comes through in your own work, was, uh, "No rush, just do it immediately." Oh my God, that drove me crazy as a child. But now I drive my children and grandchildren crazy with it. But you know what? It 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 took an extra generation to sink in. That is my mantra now. And I, that was actually really what, how I did this book every day. It was, I didn't, I didn't feel rushed doing it, 
a little manic, yes, because manic in the sense that I was going to write just in the morning or the afternoon. And once I started, I thought, well, I'll write in the afternoon, too, and then I'll write in the evening. Um, but it wasn't rushed at all. But I never but I did everything immediately. So if there was a question that came up like, um, well, when we published uh, Mary Baker Eddy's uh, the biography of Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science. It was a kind of expose, thoroughly researched biography that did not uh, cover up the fact that in many ways she was a fraud and she knew it, but she was a brilliant businesswoman. Well, you can imagine the Christian Science Church in the 19, I think this was in around 1930, they were not amused. And what I didn't know when I was researched along the way was that they threatened to call the mortgages of bookstores that that carried the book and they would send people into bookstores to steal the books. And I did know from my father that we being the publisher and having a bookstore, there was a big display of the book in the window of the Scribner bookstore. And my grandfather had the manager of the store come to him in panic saying, Oh, Mr. Scribner, uh, uh, we've got a notice that uh, if we if we don't take this, these books out of the window, the, uh, they will smash the windows. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> my great-grandfather's great reply was, and this I got from my father, um, uh, his reply was, he said, leave them in the window. We have insurance. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, it was just little stories like that that I, I, you know, I would never have found in the archives down at Princeton if I had spent a year pouring through all this material yeah amazing or or, or i mean i i think it is it is no well i would I would have found in the archives that i heard from my dad that for example we within the period of i think three years first we published a book i found quite by accident on the on the library shelf of our editorial library uh, it was uh the autobiography of Benito Mussolini, 1928. So my father said, not one of our finest publications. Uh, but it was amusing because it said on the jacket in, in script, presumably his, probably not, there is no other autobiography by me, Benito Mussolini. And I just thought, boy, t talk about uh, protesting too much. Of course, he didn't write it. Um, it, was, uh, it, it was our ambassador to Rome who interviewed him and put it together along with a ghostwriter who turned out to be a best-selling author decades later after being liberated from house arrest by the, um, by the GIs at the end of world war II, uh, Luigi Barzini, who wrote the first great book on Italian culture for Americans called the Italians in the mid 1960s. So, you know, as Fitzgerald said, if it wasn't life, it was magnificent. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> but anyway, following Mussolini to, I suppose, to even the scales, so we, we wouldn't be uh, accused of, of having a political point of view, we proceeded to publish three years later the great uh, Bolshevik uh, communist autobiography, Leon Trotsky's autobiography. And he, when he would write his publisher, he would sign all his letters in red ink. How's that for a nice touch? Yeah, I mean, these are amazing stories. And of course... I will link to um, your home base there and charlesscribner.com. Of course, the book is Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. It tells the inside story of five generations, over 150 years at the legendary publishing house. 
And uh, yeah, um, I thought Michael Peach, the CEO of Hachette, said uh, it intertwines the author's experience with the historical narrative. The portrait of Charles Scribner Jr. here shows him to have been a wise and substantial contributor to the world of writing and ideas, an essential contribution to the history of book publishing. I thought that was uh, very nice. And of course, Kirkus called it a charming memoir of a life in books. Um, yeah, congrats. It's, it's quite an achievement. And, and yes, as you put it, it is, uh, it's fun to read. Oh, well, thank you. Michael Peach, by the way, I have to, I have to say, in my memory of, of those early years at Scribner's, uh, uh, he just stands out head and shoulders above everyone else. Uh, in his 20s, my father, but enlisted him to, um, to edit Hemingway's The Dangerous Summer. Hmm. And he did a he he did a brilliant job on it, and and took the first stab on the Garden of Eden too. And told my dad, he left shortly thereafter after the merger with Macmillan, and went on to a brilliant career in publishing. But he he was the one who told my dad, you know, someday you should publish the Garden of Eden. It could be edited and 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 published, and indeed it was later. But uh, Michael was uh, just a phenomenon. And 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 remains to this day a very close friend. Um, so many great stories. I could obviously pick your brain all day long. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to wrap up with kind of, I don't know, your unique view of uh, you know, maybe some of what you what you see in the current publishing landscape, maybe just a message to like aspiring authors who are kind of questioning their place in all of it. You just how to how to persevere. Well. I think actually for for authors today, there are opportunities that did not exist before. Uh, what I what I'm alluding to is the 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 opportunity to create a prototype. If you have a book, a story, in the old days, you had to find an agent or you had to find a publisher before it could even be made public, which is what publish means. But now there are other options with the internet and with uh, say through a company like Amazon, I reissued my art books when after 20 years they went out of print, my books on Rubens and Bernini, I did them myself through Amazon. So, so they're now, and I updated them, they're available in paperback. This isn't an ad. This is just a, an example to uh, say that somebody now can can actually create a published novel or, or biography or whatever as a prototype and uh, have it in print, and then that can be shown to, uh, that can be often picked up by commercial publishers down the line. So there, there, in other words, you're not just sitting at your desk waiting for somebody to bring it forth. You, you can, there are other ways to do it now, just as musicians can go directly to YouTube. They don't have to wait for a contract from a record company. And I think that, I think, I think that this is uh, an enormous uh, opportunity. The, the one saying of my dad's that rings in my mind, and I can attest to it from experience, he said, just remember, Charlie, writing is its own reward. I've never forgotten that. Amazing. What a great way to wrap up this uh, fascinating chat. Charlie, we really appreciate your time, your words, your wisdom. Uh, go hither, but we thank you again for coming on the show and uh, do come back in the future. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy to chat with you. And scene. I think we got it. I think we can 
hit uh, stop on the recording. And man, I do thank you again um, for taking the time and, and for jumping on Zoom for the first time. Well, thank you. I hope <laughs> I didn't ramble on too much, but you know, the nice thing is you can edit it. Of course. That was such, so great and really great to get your take on everything. And and I, I do mean it. Um, it would be great to chat with you more and pick your brain more. Listen, if you have any interest, line up anytime. I love talking with you. I have to, uh, we're not being recorded now, but I have to, you mentioned Stevenson. The great joy for me actually was going out to Newark. I took two weeks, well, took five working days over two weeks, uh, over a period of two weeks in the magnificent uh, recording studios of of Audible. And I had a friend who who was an executive there and he just got me the best director and the best technician. So I was really blessed. But recording the book, there were two places that I had to do multiple takes because I would start choking up as I read them. And even as familiar as they are, and one was the, uh, the letter by Robert Louis Stevenson about how he would never leave Scribner's. He said, uh, there's no nameable amount of dollars that would make me pay them back evil for good. And I mean, can you imagine an author writing that today? No nameable amount of dollars, please. <laughs> and the other one, the other one that, that I, I had to do multiple takes because it would break me up was Hemingway's magnificent condolence letter to my dad on the death of his father. I think it's been anthologized. I don't think there's ever been a condolence letter better than Hemingway's. So the opportunity to put that in the book itself was was a gift. Amazing. Um, well, I had not stopped the recording, so I hope you don't mind if I include that. Put it in if you like, because okay. those those are really two very personal moments yeah. uh, that were not lighthearted. I, 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 they, they, really, they really touched me deeply. The loyalty of Stevenson and the loyalty of Hemingway uh, in his condolence letter. He says, you'll never have to worry about me. And imagine getting a letter like that from Hemingway, that you, you'll never have to worry about me. Um, my father saw a side of him, and I think maybe brought out a side of him that uh, a, a lot of people didn't see. And the, and the other thing that I was able to put in the book, and it just occurred, you know, Dad always used to say to me, you know, writing clarifies thinking. You make discoveries while you were in the process of writing that you didn't know before you started writing. And one of the discoveries I had was something that nobody had mentioned to me. And my father was too modest. And it was the story of Hemingway's will and how it was locked up in the office safe in my father's office or filing cabinet. And the, the, the little you know epiphany that came to me at the end of that chapter was he never mentioned to anyone later the obvious that had just occurred to me while writing, which was that Hemingway entrusted his will not to his lawyer, but to his publisher. And that that says something about the relationship between author and publisher in Hemingway's case. Truly, truly. Because everybody else, you yeah. know, everybody else, they leave their will with their lawyer. They don't sure. give it to the publisher or they <laughs> leave it with a family member somebody you know that they that they really trust yeah that's incredible but i didn't that thought hadn't occurred to me until i was telling the story you know the dad also you i think i i quoted in the book somewhere he loved to say the obvious is these days often overlooked hmm. yeah interesting interesting well, listen i've i've rambled on too long but i really have enjoyed this i hope you you can sense that for sure and uh, it comes through 
um, wholeheartedly also in the work and, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, I will cherish it myself, but yeah, let's, uh, chat soon and I'll let you know, um, when we get this polished up and of course edited for content, but I uh, appreciate all of your thoughts and all of your, um, yeah, insights are really cool stuff. I said to Michelle, um, I said to Michelle, in my experience, I have never been asked to cut something that hasn't made it better. So I'm leaving it up to you now. You cut and you'll make it better. 100%. Charlie, thank you again. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Take care now. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.